middle of the earth in the land of Shire lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden height fuzzy woolly toes. He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him, Bilbo. Welcome once again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I've chosen as our opening song this week, The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins by Leonard Nimoy, a human horror recorded in 1966 in the era when Star Trek actors could record whatever they want and release it and get away with it. And let me tell you, the video is so much worse than the music you're hearing right now. But I've chosen this song because we have a piece on the site this week about J.R.R. Tolkien and the takeover of the Tolkien Society by woke, trendy Tolkien scholars. It's an excellent piece, and we're going to talk about it right now. Well, he fought with the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. So we're going to talk about J.R. Tolkien right now with G.L. Ford. Coming to us live from Texas, as am I. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. How much so? Oh, I'm well. I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna call you Greg during this uh, during this podcast because I I knew you as Greg way back when. Greg and I have known each other for almost thirty years now. It's been quite a while. Yeah, uh, and uh, neither of us have have evolved much in that time. No, um, I'm afraid not. No, or 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 improved, but we're still here. Uh, but uh, Greg is a uh, a writer and a poet and a, a teacher of the, the English language, and uh, you wrote a piece for us this week um, about, about the legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien. There's been, a, there's been some um, controversy uh, of late, about because the, the Tolkien Society is meeting this weekend, I believe. Yes, they're having their annual, well, they have, I think, a fall and a summer. They have several times a year they have a seminar where various scholars of Tolkien get together and they give little presentations on one subject or other and usually it's pretty standard stuff you know what you know what do we know about the orcs or um, Galadriel and her you know people so mm-hmm. forth it's, and yeah. this yeah. this summer's is a little less standard um, and it got covered here and there, um, not just by Book and Film Globe, but I no. Well, yeah, you know, I, I, what I noticed is, I mean, that this has largely been controversial in, I, I, I would say, the conservative media. You know, that there, there's been some mild outrage um, about about the subject matter of this uh, of this uh, month's Tolkien Society. Uh, this. Seasons Tolkien Society meeting. Well, what are some of the topics that they're going to be discussing, and why? Uh, I mean, you were you were, I would say, a, a bit critical of it. Why? Why? Why is it problematic to you? Well, I think it's really it's not the subject matter per se, but it's the grafting of these subjects onto Tolkien and Middle Earth. So something mighty. Queer, destabilizing cis-hetero-amata normativity in the works of Tolkien. Um, it, it's, it's language soup for one thing, but, I mean, Tolkien himself was quite a conservative Roman Catholic individual who, you know, deliberately brought Catholic theology to the base of his work. I mean, it's, you know, it peaks through here and there. And he really worked hard, and in his essay on fairy stories, which I referred to in the article several times, he really wanted, especially fairy, fairy tales, fairy stories, which he saw himself as a writer of, to be something you use for escape. It's not all about our real-life concern. That's right there in the foreword to The Lord of the Rings. He said, you know, if, if this were about the battle between communism and fascism, then, you know, the, the victor at the end would just 
become another tyrant, you know, once Sauron was dead. Um, so it's not about real-world applicability, it's about having something to escape to. Now, a good friend of mine read the article last night and he said, well, if it's really just about authorial intent, then it's not really much of an escape, is it? Well, I see what he's getting at. You know, if you're reading, you bring your own set of preoccupations and concerns with you into the experience of reading, but I don't know if that really counts if you're a scholar and mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're taking your concerns and you're cutting up the work to, um, well, again, to, to graft your concerns onto the work when the work has nothing to do with your concerns. Right. Now, I mean, it just seems to me like this seems to be a case. I may not be using correct academic terminology. I'm not an academic. But that, uh, you know, post-structuralism, queer theory, you know, uh, and it, it all kind of uh, has has finally reached the, the, the brief the walls, so to speak, the, of Helm's Deep, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, I mean, it's like, well, it's like that kind of scholarship has, 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 has taken over pretty much all branches of literary and academic study at this point. Right. And it's, um, kind of puzzling to me because I, you know, I've been reading these books for, I don't know, I mean, the first actual book I ever read was The Hobbit, you know, Leonard Nimoy notwithstanding. Um, and it is an escape, and it, it just, on a personal level, I, I just feel somewhat affronted that, you know, these folks think that, you know, they're concerns about, you know, what's important are more important than the works themselves. Now, I know part of this, too, is that the, the Tolkien Society itself has changed because Christopher Tolkien, you wrote about this last year, who was a, a J.R. Tolkien's son, sort of held the line for his entire life. And he just died last year and he was old when he died. So, so this, so th that may be in a sense why the world of middle earth has sort of resisted longer than some yeah. other uh, pop culture universes, right? Because the, the sort of conservative family values held longer. Yes. His sister Priscilla is still vice president, but she's very old now and I'm not sure how much sway she actually holds. Right. It would, it would appear not so very much. Or maybe she's, you know, got a different point of view than her brother. Had. Right. Right. But I guess, I guess, you know, my question is, why is this bad? Is it just because this scholarship is trendy and it doesn't really apply to the sort of day-to-day -day Lord of the Rings fan? You know, because... So, so is this a, I mean, is this really a problem going forward? And then I guess the other question I have is, you know, we, we thought that Lord of the Rings was done, right? I mean, the Peter Jackson three movies plus the three Hobbit movies. You figure, well, you know, those were like iconic films, and you got to figure like that's the final word. But no, Amazon is redoing Lord of the Rings again. Yeah, well, I don't think they're adapting the the novel itself, but they're going to be mm -hmm. doing the whole Middle Earth universe. A series which no one quite is sure what the scope of that's going to be. Um, but at any rate, uh, so this, the, the Tolkien Society is jumping on that bandwagon and they said in their statement regarding the society that, you know, regarding um, uh, the casting of the Amazon series is you know, all about diversity, so we're bringing diversity into our our seminar. So here's our sure. very diverse, our very diverse set of uh, topics uh, that we're going to discuss this time around. Um, I mean, no one's gonna, no, well, no one, no one can doubt that you know the, the Peter Jackson Middle Earth was was very white. You know, it, it is not a, a not not a a, a coup. For actors of color being cast in the Lord of the Rings, and I don't, I, I don't think anyone's going to care if there are black elves or you know trans, you, you know uh, transgender dwarfs, no. or 
or or what or, or, or whatever you know or like you know you know Asian hobbits you know it doesn't none of that really none of that matters you know there's no race other than elves and men and dwarves no and orcs exactly. and whatever in Lord of the Rings no one cares about that you know just like no one's gonna bat an eye if there's a gay relationship in the in the new extended Middle Earth universe of course there's going to be yeah I, I'm going to guess there probably will be well as you well, you ask why what they're doing with this seminar is bad. And it's not that, you know, I'm going to set aside the question about whether this, these sorts of scholarship, you know, what, what merit they might have in their own right. It's just, again, that it's nothing to do with token. It's, it's bringing these, what, uh, what did, how did token put it? Uh, you know, what they are fond of calling real life, um, even though, you know, he said that with a tone of scorn, um, and grafting it onto um, what should be in a form of escape. Right. All right. So, you know, it's the, the, the standard, you know, ac- these are the academic uh, leeches, the parasites sort of take, taking their, 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 their ideological concerns and and putting it into something that may where they just may not apply. Yeah, it's they're really I mean the literature is the literature. It's you know, stands on its own merits. And they're just doing their best to suck the life out of it for their own I don't know, for their own purposes. All right. Well, that's a you know, a, a, a strong firm opinion. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what we like. that's what we like at Book and Film Globe: strong, firm opinions that go against the the the, the popular grain. We we aim for that. And uh, Greg, thank you so much. Uh, great piece. And of course, thank ha- you. Great, great to have you on the show. And we'll, we'll we'll have you back hopefully with a better intro song next time. Oh, that was you're, you know. You're, 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 you're going to be humming that thing. You're going to be humming that Nimoy thing all day. It's going to be. Your worm is going to destroy your weekend. Better that than a Shatner. So now we're going to move along. It, uh, the way we do this uh, book and film globe week in review podcast is we go books, then we go film, then we go streaming TV for dessert. I am Neil Pollock, the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We are recording this live on the Clubhouse app, the app that has uh, has captured the imaginations of of people who like internet psychics and Bitcoin the world over. Clubhouse for people who like internet psychics and Bitcoin. That, that's my new slogan for them. Uh, and uh, also, uh, there's a lot of motivational coaches on here. I'm not a motivational coach. I am merely a writer and a pop culture editor. Uh, this uh, will also be airing on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else that fine podcast material can be heard. We're going to move to film now. Sarah Stewart, a Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic par excellence is here to talk to us. Hello, Sarah. Hello. How are you? Nice to have you back. I'm great. Thanks. Glad to be back. Take, taking some time out from your family vacation to chat about movies. It's a, it's a vacation from your vacation, really. Yes, uh, glad, glad to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, I, I, got, I got to step away from the lake, mom yeah. and dad or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's work. It's work. It has to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to provide the excuse. So you wrote, you know, speaking of uh, sort of counter uh, opinions, you wrote a, about a movie that I'm seeing a lot of people on my feed really, really digging, a movie called Zola. Uh, that you know that you uh, you you had a lot lot of uh, problems with this this thing and maybe you tell us a little bit about uh, how how Zola came to be and 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 what you think of it. Sure. Uh, so I've been yeah I've been following uh, Zola with some anticipation for a while now. It was on the festival circuit before it came out, and it is based on a very notorious uh, long Twitter thread from 2015 written by this woman uh, whose, whose middle name is, is Zola, who purportedly uh, took a road trip with a fellow exotic dancer 
down to Florida for what she thought was going to be a couple of days of uh, making money, dancing in a club. And uh, as it turned out, this, this Zola is black. This woman that she met uh, and, and had sort of quickly had befriended her was white. Um, this woman, Jessica in real life, Stephanie in the movie, it quickly became apparent that she wanted the two of them to uh, be uh, tra- trapped, to trap, I think is the correct terminology. Uh, anyway, it was more prostitution than it was dancing, uh, or the, the dancing was kind of a, a footnote, and that she was expected to kind of hole up in this uh, motel room with this other woman and turn tricks, and she... Uh, was not having it, and she, along for the ride, was this woman's pimp, who she had passed off as her roommate, and this woman's sort of sad sack boyfriend, who seemed very volatile, and uh, and she narrated this hilariously, it must be said, and colorfully and profanely in a long string of tweets, and it it went incredibly viral made her famous, you know, it was a really great yarn. It was an excellent use of Twitter. It was, it was a crazy story, well told, uh, and it, it rightly got a lot of attention. So um, the movie originally fell into the hands of James Franco, who I think we can all mm. assume would have done uh, reprehensible things with it. And, uh, but it, it eventually- uh, it, It's possible. <laughs> it's, it's just possible. <laughs> Um, yeah. But it, it eventually went to this uh, black female director whose name I'm probably going to mangle uh, because I've never actually heard it spoken out loud. It, it looks like Janixa Bravo. I'm pretty sure that's not how it's pronounced, but that, that is what it looks like. Okay. Uh, her previous movie was a, a, an indie called Lemon that starred her husband, uh, the comic Brett Gelman, um, and got, got good notices. So I was hopeful for Zola being translated into film through the eyes of this, uh, this strong black female voice, uh, Taylor Page, who was uh, quite good in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, starred as Zola, and uh, Riley Keough, a.k.a. Uh, Elvis's granddaughter, yes. uh, is uh, playing uh, uh, Jessica, now Stephanie. So and the movie starts out kind of the way I wanted it to start out, which is really focusing on the friendship between these two women and the way that, uh, the way that, that female friendships can get real intense real quick. And even if you kind of suspect that someone is a little sketchy, if they've got a lot of charisma and they're really fun, um, you know, that can be one of the most intoxicating things in life. So it's kind of a delight. And then, and then the film takes a turn when they go down to Florida and the, uh, you know, Zola starts catching on to what's going on. And my feeling was that where I kind of started to fall off was that the film started to draw back in this way that I was familiar with in uh, the movie Spring Breakers. Um, and and in uh, I think some other movies, it started to take on this kind of let's laugh at the Florida trash um, vibe you you sort of have this pastel palette and you have a background of kind of shitty things going on uh you know you see a confederate flag waving as they drive by you see cops beating a guy you know as they're going down the road like you understand i mean florida is sort of the worst of our country writ large i guess and um but but it still passes off everything that happens to Zola, even as she witnesses it in this very kind of stoic way and refuses to be sucked into the prostitution while helping her friend uh, make more money because, as she says, uh, pussy is worth thousands and her, her friend's uh, pimp is charging $150 uh, a, a tryst, which is ridiculously low. low. It's low. It seems low, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so she she is kind of our she's almost like our Jim Helper, right? She's kind of witnessing all of this and looking askance. And does uh, she actually look askance at the camera? She there is never a breaking of the fourth wall. She does not look at the camera, but she she looks near the camera. It it, it had a similar feeling to me. We're seeing that through her eyes, and she's just thinking, "What the fuck?" And well, I'm wonder, I'm wondering, Sarah, if part of the problem might be that 
the Twitter feed that this was based on may not have been entirely uh, non-fictional. Well, exactly. Exactly. You know? It strikes me yes. as a little, little, little lonely girl 15 sounding to me. Yes. It, it, it's such a wild story. It ends with somebody, one person getting shot and another person hurling himself off a balcony. Yeah, as, as all know, stories do. As all stories do when you go down to Florida, you know, and it, again, great yarn, you know, as you know, you know, in the grand tradition of, you know, <laughs> Mark Twain, just like play it up, throw in whatever. That's great. I think it works tremendously well on Twitter, but in a movie, um, it, it just, it translates to, you're trying to make it a comedy, but at the heart of the comedy are these two women who are being forced into some incredibly uncomfortable situations. And, and moreover, we're really invited to kind of point and laugh at uh, Riley Keough's character for being a, you know, for being a hoe, for being manipulative, for taking advantage of Zola. But, but fundamentally what it seems like is she's under the control of this pimp to whom she gives all of the money that she makes, even though she makes a tremendous amount of money. And, and that she doesn't really have any agency of her own at all. And once again, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, you know, you know, hoes are crazy and sex work is gross. And I, you know, I don't want to come off as a scold here. I'm, I'm, I'm not against sex work at all. I just, I, I really take issue with this kind of framing of it as something to be uh, laughed at. Because all I'm seeing is this is a, you know, a masterpiece of satire and, and mm-hmm. like, and, you know, and, 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 and like the first, it's the first real good Twitter movie. It's you know, and it, people were praising its sort of frenetic style. I've been surprised, honestly, that people have been so, so wowed by the style. I don't have any problems with the style. I thought it was quite nice to look at and, and it is frenetic in the way that Twitter is. And you have that little whistle sound effect every so often. So, you know, it's a Twitter movie. But I also felt like most of the style was something that was very of 2020 or maybe 2021. It didn't feel very timeless to me. It felt like something that was, uh, you know, perhaps speaks to our moment and our ADD um, and, and the way we experience storytelling right now. But it didn't seem like something that would age very well. It seemed like something that, you know, a kid would watch in 10 years and kind of roll their eyes at. Uh, this all it also struck me, and I, I may be wrong here, but this is sort of you know ironically, given that the movie has a black protagonist and a black female director, this is sort of a star making vehicle for Riley Keough in a way who's been sort of circling around mm-hmm. you know, Hollywood. You know, she's been in a lot of she was in the the Steven Soderbergh's The Girlfriend Experience TV show. She was uh, she played sort of a Daisy Duke like character in Logan Lucky. Uh, mm-hmm. She's been she's been she's been a, and she's got a starring role in a in a big, a big adaptation of the novel Daisy Jones and the Six, which is like a 1970s oh, yeah. rock show. That's coming up on Amazon. And so it struck me as like, this is really like, a, you know, uh, a, a Riley Keough, uh, you know, like primer for people. Ironically, Didn't... the white woman, the white woman still walks away with uh, the, the accolades. And, yeah. and one thing, you know, as you know, that I sort of ended up not really being able to include it. My, my piece was sort of focused on the, the sex work and the, the tone, yeah. but I did think that there is another reading of this and I would really preferably um, want a, a, a black critic to really take this on. Um, you know, there is an element of this where um, it is kind of a, a metaphor for um, how just white women are the worst. And, yep. um, and I'm interested in, in a reading of it that way. Although I haven't really, I haven't really read that, yeah, uh, too much either. Again, my you know my thing was like maybe this particular white woman is the worst, but yeah. Yeah. you can't really can't really draw broad conclusions that way. Well, all right, yeah. Sarah, thank you so much. What a, what an interesting review. I love your take on this movie. Uh, it, again, it's the kind of thing we try to feature on Book and Film Glow. Try to just go a little bit askew from from what else we're we're seeing out there. So uh, so I guess get back to the lake or the water <laughs> fall or you know whatever the the you know roller the Kansas. Over. The K- oh, Kansas. Yeah well, yeah, yeah. well, you know, just click your heels three times and you'll be home soon enough. So, <laughs> okay. Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Sarah Stewart uh, here on uh, the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm Neil Pollack, editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. And we're going to continue talking about film now. We're going to transition to the Riley Keough 
Steven Soderbergh transition is going to be very smooth because Steven Garrett is here, as he always is. I think Steven just sits here, waits for me. We just wait for each other to talk That's every true. day. That's true. Quietly. Yeah. We're like uh, I, I wouldn't say we're, we have a Siskel and Ebert vibe going on. It's more like a Michael <laughs> Medved, Jeffrey Lyons, you know, uh, vibe, really. Sad, <laughs> sort of lights. I forgot those guys. Yeah, they were the they they hosted that show after Siskel and Ebert. After left. they moved, after they yeah. went uh, into syndication from PBS, those yeah. guys took over. Right? Yeah, so we're so we're so we're we're like you know he put us in the multiplicity machine five times removed from Jeffrey Lyons and Michael Medved. <laughs> you know. So are we clones? Are we clones? Are we clones or decoys? I'll yeah, a little it's, Rick it's and Morty to, uh, reference. Hard, hard to say. Uh, I, I've lost track. So uh, so Stephen. Uh, I've not uh, yet uh, put the piece up, but you 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 went Soderbergh again this week. Another Steven Soderbergh movie has appeared. Yeah, yeah. This is I, I I think it was only about six months ago, or maybe nine. That it was last fall, I think, that he had uh, that let them one all with talk. The, let them all talk. Yeah, I was about to say people will talk, but that's something else. Yeah, with well, Meryl Streep, he has these little star projects. Fascinating. What is this one called? This this it's another heist movie. It's got a slightly more memorable title, No Sudden Move, which mm. um, is very appropriate to the story, although is still pretty... It's like on the bubble of generic in terms of the title. The movie's anything but... Um, although it starts out that way, it's got a slow burn at the beginning. Um, you know, basically, small-town crooks... Not small-town, these are small-time crooks in a big town in Detroit. Uh, it's Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro. Um, and, you know, they're called by some shady guy to do some job, and then the job goes sideways, and then uh, the MacGuffin that they're going after, which is this document, um, they realize could be much more valuable uh, to the right person. So they start getting a little more ambitious. Uh, you know, as Benicio says, don't get greedy. And uh, Don Cheadle literally says, I want more. <laughs> and <laughs> so... Uh, and that becomes an opportunity to actually open up the story more. Don Cheadle is really the, his character is a star. Um, and it becomes a, more of a story about uh, redlining and, uh, you know, how uh, the Interstate Highway Act is transforming the face of uh, cities. I mean, this all comes out way towards the end as the, as the you know, kind of the story broadens and becomes larger and larger, and then little uh, little uh, little, ch- little Chinatowny maybe. It is a little Chinatowny at the end, and not at the end, but near the end. There's a big reveal where suddenly Matt Damon pops up, which is just hilarious that he would pop up yet again in a Steven Soderbergh movie. And he has like maybe a five or ten minute scene. I, I mentioned Network because it's like a Ned Beatty sort of. Right. He's very smooth talking. He's clearly the one in control always. And he's a little bemused by these small-time crooks that he is deigned to meet with, but has to, and then uh, lectures them, uh, you know, in this very voice of God sort of way about this is how the universe really works, you know. And then uh, he leaves the room, and our crooks go on their way. Um, but it's a it, it it starts slow. I was really restless the first 25 minutes or so because it's a lot of setup and a lot of just seems like small potatoes and you don't really care. And then suddenly, uh, what's funny though, is Brendan Fraser is the guy who hires them. And Brendan Fraser is, is not the trim sort of, uh, you know, nineties hunk that he once was. He's definitely, uh, widened and, uh, transformed physically to be a more menacing, but also still very laughable, goofy guy with the same voice. But he, he looks very different from how he did in his, in his heyday and his youth. Um, and he's used so well. He is so fun every time his character pops up. But he's a he's a middleman. He's a he's a middle manager crook, you know. And right. he's kind of like, yeah, what happened to the deal? I hired you for the deal. Now we got to talk to the boss. That kind of thing. Um, so is but, this, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out if this is a fun movie to watch, though. And, and, and I'll it also, becomes. Yes, it becomes. That's a good point. It becomes a fun movie to watch. It's not that fun for the first 20 minutes or so because you're not really too sure where this is going. And Brendan Fraser adds a little uh, comic relief. But then Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro get paired up with Kieran, uh, Kieran Culkin. And suddenly they're wearing these masks which hook into their ears. And they look really weird. And it's like, I guess those are 50s gangster masks. Um, but uh, then they hold hostage David Harbour's family suddenly. It's David Harbour and Amy Simons and their kids. And then David Harbour has to get this document from, his, from the boss's vault. 
And you slowly realize like, oh, this is who he works for. Oh, that's what's happening. Oh, this is fun. And then the job goes sideways and you're like, wait, what? Why did that happen? And then Don Cheadle's character kind of takes control and is like, no, we're going to do it X, Y, Z. We're going to do this instead. And then it's really fun. Then it's kind of off to the races. And then it's like, you can't trust anybody. People are double crossing and then they get double crossed and it's so much fun. And more big names pop up. Ray Liotta pops up. Um, it's, it's great. It's a really, it, I, it really turned around for me after about a half hour. And then I was like loving every bit until it ended. So, and strong. I mean, right. it, it plays stronger and stronger and then ends pretty strong too. So, um, my question is, didn't Steven Soderbergh retire from making yeah. movie about a yeah. decade ago? It was about a decade ago. I think around 2012 or so he was like, uh, or no, around 20, uh, 2009, 2010, um, he was like, I've got another two years worth of movies I have set up and then I'm going to retire. And, and he's made 10 I, movies since then. He's been pretty busy. Yeah. No, he took a break. He took a break and then got really busy in TV. I remember, uh, interviewing him, uh, around that time and it's, you know, asking him like, why are you retiring? This is crazy. Uh, and he just said, look, it's just too hard. Uh, it, he didn't say it's too hard. He's, I, I think he knows how to work any sort of within any sort of constraints. So I don't think hard is necessarily something he laments. I think he enjoys a, a challenge, a good challenge. But I, I think he just said, the kinds of movies I want to make, Hollywood isn't making anymore. He, I, I think he really looked ahead of the curve there. He saw where the hockey puck was going in terms of streamers, in terms of TV giving you more creative license, in terms of more money being available to filmmakers who want to tell 10-hour stories, 20-hour stories. And, you know, so he pivots to the Nick and does two seasons of that and directs every episode, you know, which is like 20 hours of TV. Um, and that's what he was doing in his retirement. Um, I had a chance to talk to him a couple of years ago too. Um, and this was around, he had just done Logan Lucky, which Bleecker Street had released. And then he was doing a movie called Unsane, which was his like low budget psycho thriller. Claire Foy is, is basically gaslit into being locked up in a mental institution. Um, and it's a really fun, you know, uh, you know, kind of exercise. I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but it's a really fun one to watch. Uh, and he shot it all on iPhones. He's an experimentalist. I mean, that's what he's always trying to do. He's, he's, I feel like he's been challenged so much by so many different types of movies and he just wants to find a new challenge. So I think he learned early. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm talking too long. The, these two movies specific, specifically Unsane and, uh, uh, the, uh, Logan Lucky, he was trying to reinvent how you could, distribute a movie, how you could make and distribute a movie. And he, he used the phrase, open the kimono. He said, when we were talking, he said, I put all of the production finances online for people to see how much a movie actually costs if you want to do it for a certain amount of money. And, and then he did that really quick one-off, uh, High Flying Bird, I think, for Netflix. Uh, and then he did The Laundromat for Netflix. He, he's just looking for what are interesting, innovative ways to keep making movies so that you have control. Well, and you know, he was the one of the original indie filmmaker with Sex Lies and the Videotape, and I feel like he's reinvented um, indie filmmaking, right? I mean, no sudden move. Where, where, where can you watch this thing? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, we should have said at the beginning. It's HBO Max, and so, oh. again, but it's the second HBO Max movie he's made in the past year, because Let Them All Talk was HBO Max. I don't, I don't know if this is getting a theatrical release. Um, but it's certainly available on streaming. And again, Soderbergh's always been agnostic about platforms. He's like, I don't care as long as you can see it. You know, I really don't care. And he's so fast. Of course, he, he actually, uh, as he has for most of his movies, certainly most recent movies, directed, uh, photographed. He's a director of photography, edited, um, you know, and uses the same kind of cast and crew. David Holmes is doing the music in this one like he did uh, for a lot of his other Types of movies, heist movies, crime movies. You know, it's just kind of his wheelhouse. He likes this kind of this type is of not movie. It's more of a genre play. This is not someone who spends his free time like me watching movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> actually, he, actually he does. No, no, no. But he does. He spends his free time watching movies and then re-editing movies. And if you go, he has a website and he uh, puts – it's like a blog. It's like his little film blog. He, he lists all the movies he's seen uh, for the calendar year and what day he saw them. And he will put up, re-edited, he's like, oh, I re-edited this movie, you know, here it is. You know, I re-edited Touch of Evil, or it wasn't that. But he's, he's gone back to classic movies that other people have made, and he's put out his own cut. Speaking, speaking of movies 
uh, seeing movies, I, I, I got I to run this by you. I saw a movie this week. I don't know if you read that piece or not. But I went to see a Vietnamese movie, hmm. Bo Gia. And I, yeah. I, again, because I am, you know, I'm definitely the coolest person on earth. I subscribe to a daily current events trivia newsletter. And one of the items in this newsletter was about the highest grossing Vietnamese movie of all time called Bo Gia, <laughs> which, which translates to Dad, I'm Sorry. And, uh, and, and, and this movie wow. not only made seven, $17 million in Vietnam, but it also had made a million dollars in the box office in the U.S., which, you know, obviously like a million dollars box office is, is hardly like boffo, but it's like at the same time, you know, a lot of movies, American-made movies struggle to make that much. And so here you oh, have sure. this movie that's like clearly that, – that, here you have a movie that's clearly caught on in, 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 the, in the Vietnamese community. It was, it was playing in a theater in Austin, Texas, which is hardly oh, wow. a, a hub of, of, of Vietnamese culture. Um, went to see this movie, and my God, it was awful. I mean, <laughs> awful. I mean, it was. It was. It was. Well, the thing is, here's the thing. Like there, there was a um, a, a Vietnamese a comedian, and he made a, a YouTube series about like Vietnamese family life, and they this this family like they all they're this working class family, and they live in an alley, and the opening scene is is some kid running down the alley with his ass crack hanging out of his shorts and then the, that kid vanishes for the rest of the movie two women get slapped within the first five minutes and we, we think like we're, we're in for some kind of like you know stuff's getting spilled on people people are yelling at each other and i'm like we're just in for some kind of broad stupid comedy and it quickly devolves into this like ludicrous melodrama where people are like yelling at each other and, and asking each other if they love you know, Screaming, do you love me at the top of your lungs? And it's like father and sons fighting. There's a, there's a father who uh, delivers rice on a motor scooter and then an ungrateful son who has a YouTube channel and makes a lot of money. And it's like this conflict what? between the two of them. It's, in, it's insane. And then there's like this – there's this um, – there's, there, there's, um, there's a plot about a, a, an adopted six-year-old girl. And there's this argument about who the father is. And then there's some blackmailing and then the mob comes in. It, 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 it's it, – Clearly didn't translate. It was like something that would have aired on, on, on TV in the afternoon in Saigon. And, uh, and, 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 and the subtitles are bad. At one point, there's a scene where the entire family, there's a huge family, they're all like sobbing and moaning and pounding their fists and breaking furniture. And this like annoying anti-character um, raises her fist to the sky and moans. And the subtitles are, are terrible and were hurriedly done. She moans. Why is all these happening to our family? <laughs> and and it was so and I was like, does somebody say like, can I has a does somebody say can I has a cheeseburger right after she yeah, said right. that? Right, but it, right, but it's like it, Bogia feel to me like felt like death of the salesman run through Google Translate about fifty five times. Well, but <laughs> it's know? slapstick and, 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 too, right? But then there's some comedy. There, but but then there but then there's slapstick. Yeah, like there's uh, I'll. I'll just read this from, from my review. Considering that the film prominently features a scene where the main character wipes his ass in a bathroom stall while his cousin peeks in trying to sell him a luxury apartment, a final message of, quote, love your parents despite their flaws because they'll be dead soon feels more than a little jarring, hacky, and manipulative. Well, look, maybe <laughs> it's like a Tyler Perry thing, except Vietnamese. Yeah, yeah that's a good it's point, very... actually. Like, Culturally yeah. specific and made for yeah. a certain type of audience that loves it. That well, clearly someone loves it. Clearly, like these these are these characters are iconic in in Vietnam, and 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 and, nice. and the, the comedian who made this movie is very popular. And you know, he appears on like panel shows in Saigon, like the Vietnamese version of Whose Line Is It Anyway? I, I just I, I was I, I found the it was a it was a very jarring very jarring experience going to see this movie. <laughs> I enjoyed going to the movies. Yeah, it was it was it was it was, it was bad in a way that's different from how American movies are bad. So there's that. <laughs> there's that. Well, that counts for something, man. Exactly. You know, it you was, weren't bored. It wasn't the, you weren't bored. There was no one. There was no one. Uh, you know, throwing a, a a bus through a skyscraper. It was, there weren't two like you know repressed 19th century French women in love with each other. You know, the kind of basically you know, it was different. It was a little different. Anyway, all right, Stephen. 
You're free to go. Thank you. Steven Absolutely, my pleasure. Okay. See you soon. All right, bye. Night. All right, uh, all right. So we're gonna come to the dessert section um, of, of the show. Paula Schaefer waits so patiently every week to talk about TV. Paula, hello. That's correct. Hi, I wait patiently every day yeah. to talk about TV <laughs> with anybody who will listen. Yeah, well, well, just, just, just you hang in there, hang in there, and we'll get to it. I, once again, this is the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm Neil Pollock, editor in chief of Book and Film Globe. We're talking about books and films and uh, streaming TV. Paula Schaefer is uh, as a regular writer for Book and Film Globe, and you've got a, wanted to cover a couple of uh, pieces of TV real quickly. One of them you wrote about last week, we didn't get to it, and then and then this week there's there's a new piece as well. Uh, so let's let's start off by talking about this show special. It's like a comedian slash writer, famous Hollywood person named Ryan O'Connell, who has is that multiple sclerosis? Is that is that his cerebral palsy? Cerebral palsy. I'm sorry, that's a very different, uh, mm-hmm. very different afflictions. Um, and and he made a, like a like a dramedy, like a sitcom about this. Yeah, it's. It's a very small show. It's, it's based on, like, it was originally a stage show, and then the first season of the show was on Netflix, and it was eight 15-minute-long episodes, and it was nominated for four Emmys. Mm. And then we, we go, what I watched was season two, and this show, I, I went into it, a, a show about a gay man with cerebral palsy trying to get out in the world. I was, I was really not sure how that would be. I thought it might be painfully, painfully woke and very maudlin and manipulatively sentimental. And it was not. It was kind of like Fleabag's more optimistic cousin. Um, it's this very, like, small, intimate show, and it's just packed full of zingers and truly situational comedy. It's, like, organic, natural, unfolding comedy versus zany shenanigans forced onto the characters. And it's it's a delightful show. It really is. Right. And so the, this uh, Ryan, I don't know, Ryan O'Connell play, plays he play a character named Ryan? Is it one of those one of those yes. shows? Yes. Yeah. So he like he's yes, like working is. in a, working in an office, navigating that, and then also like finding kind of like weird weird gay love with a guy a non monogamous. <laughs> yes. Partner. Yes. He, <laughs> he's a totally inexperienced dater, and he ends up in an open relationship. Like right out of the gate basically and it's kind of like trying to deal with uh, you know some of the, the the comedy comes from him being a gay man but he has you know a disability and he doesn't know if he can have penetrative sex if he can perform and you know like learning that and like feeling self-conscious about his body in a way that you usually do not see men feeling self-conscious about their bodies ever um, and like he's sitting with the, all of those feelings his best friend is uh, that he meets at the, the the online magazine where he works, which is called Egg Woke, which is kind of a send up of you know millennial publications with listicles and stuff. And uh, she is living well beyond her means, but she wants everybody to think she has this fabulous, extravagant life. She does not. Um, she's in a casual relationship. She's trying. To, she's getting serious, but trying to be breezy and easy about it. And ends up with, you know, a lot of hurt feels. It's, it's a show that just, it makes you laugh really hard and then it punches you in the heart and it earns it and you don't even mind. It's really worth watching. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that, there's not much more to say about that. Your review says pretty much the same thing, that it, you know, it feels very earnest. And I feel like it fits. We talked about a show um, a couple of weeks ago with Jamie Mason, a show called Feel Good, which is, is obviously different, but it's about a, a sort of non-binary comedian who, is trying to find love and doing while well, doing stand in London and or in Manchester, England, and I, and I feel like you know we sort of we have this era of uh, personal shows. I, it reminds me of Tick Nataro's uh, show that she had on Amazon too, where you have these sort of very small personal um, dramedy sitcoms that are based in real life. Yeah. So. Yeah, and they feel very real, but also not real and so it's the right kind of escape it's been totally worth the time right and to me it's like setting up a new hierarchy of like hollywood elite because you know ryan o'connell i saw an interview with 
him and his partner in some Hollywood magazine, and there's they're like the toast of the, you know, suddenly they're they're the guys everyone wants to play tennis with or whatever. Yes, exactly. The, the doors are opening, and and the, the, the other people are are getting in. Yeah. So, all right. So uh, that's special on Netflix. Uh, sounds good. Sounds like you should check it out. The other show that you talked about, you reviewed it this week, which is on the op- very opposite end of the entertainment spectrum in some ways, is The Bold Type, which is coming to a conclusion after five seasons on Freeform. Question, why do you, you seem to review a lot of Freeform shows. Do you have like a teen or tween child? That, <laughs> I do, but I also am emotionally and mentally 14, I think. Um, you know, it's it's just this kind of thing where it, it doesn't remind me of my real life. <laughs> so it's really nice just to get into it. And I like to see what's out there and things that are different than, you know, than yeah. like other other things. Know, the, the <laughs> that's why you're that's why you're a critic. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how to add that, but no, yeah, no, no, no. That's things. Right. Well, you're curious. That's why I'm I ended happy. up going to a Vietnamese movie on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. You know, it's exactly. Like, like, oh, this is here. This is here to watch. So uh, the bold type is it's like a it's like a sort of a um, of Sex in the City, but it feels like some 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 ways an updated version of Sex in the City about three young women who are working at a, like a a, a Vogue like fashion magazine. Yes, it's this. Um millennial take on like um the the women meet each other and one is a brand new writer and one is uh, wants to become a fashion stylist and one is in the social media department they bond they become best friends and then the show just kind of explores their sexual identities um their feelings about social issues personal health issues while also trying to build their careers it's it's not like breaking any molds, but it's a nice place where it is. Their boss is played by uh, Melora Hardin, who's Jan on The Office. Uh, and so when you when you first see her, like in the first season, it's like, oh, I know exactly what character she's going to be. But instead, she's this like tough as nails editor of Scarlet magazine, which again is like a Vogue Cosmo kind of very high end thing. But also, she just has like a soft, squishy heart. And spends an inordinate amount of time with these entry-level workers at her magazine because she's super invested in them and their careers. So it's absurd. It's also absurd is what I'm saying. Yeah, highly relatable. Well, let me tell you, if you want to get ahead <laughs> in the big city, there's no better way to do that than through a print magazine in 2021. <laughs> Absolutely. There is nothing better <laughs> in today's age. Well, they do you know, start going digital and they talk a lot about their verticals. But it's as though nobody in the involved in the writing of the show ever actually saw a magazine or <laughs> anything. It's just like, oh, I read an article about what it must have been like to work at a magazine once and what they're doing now to be modern. It's it's very removed from anything real, and <laughs> that's what that's what makes it great. It's right. Yeah. Very frothy, soapy. You know, the, the one character is a lesbian and she falls in love with a Muslim lesbian photographer and they go on this plot to like sneak dildos out of the country at one point because they're making a statement and it, and it's just like, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that reminds me of my life in magazines. That's exactly <laughs> what it was that like. Takes you back. That takes yeah, you that's back exactly, to the old days. That's exactly what it was like back in the 90s, let me tell you. Well... I, you, but you like the show. It sounds. It sounds like a. I mean, look. I I, I would watch special. I don't think that I myself am going to be tuning tuning into the bold type. But uh, but you like the show and you found like and you think that it has a sort of a place in in, in TV history and and your piece this in this week's book and film globe tries to uh, reclaim that. Yeah, it's very overlooked because it's just a small show on freeform, but it's good and. It's, it's like aspirational for, you know, like, like young women would be like, oh, wow, you know, here are these issues I, I don't see related to me. And here are these themes and look at these women bonding with each other. It's kind of, you know, like it's bringing them together. They're not women pitted against each other. And that's, that's very refreshing. It's enjoyable to watch. If you want to bond with the ladies, go work at a fashion <laughs> magazine. 
And so we come to the end of another edition of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I've been Neil Pollock. I remain Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. Thanks so much to my contributors, G.L. Ford, Sarah Stewart, Stephen Garrett, and Paula Schaefer. The site wouldn't be what it is without the wonderful contributors we have. I'm so grateful to them for their hard work and their insights. And we will see them and you and me here again soon. I'm going to be off next week. I am taking a mental health week. I'm actually digging a pit in my backyard. I'm going to cover it with banana leaves and have a revelation. It's kind of like a sweat lodge, but much less glamorous, if a sweat lodge can be even called glamorous. In any case, we're done here for now. Sharon Vane is going to be filling in next week, and I'll be back the week after. I'm closing with a song not about young women in working in magazines, but rather a young woman in a magazine. I couldn't find a song about working in a fashion magazine. It didn't look hard enough. This is the J. Giles Band with Centerfold. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.